Hey everybody, it's Matt. Welcome or welcome back to the Journey Church Podcast. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you can automatically get our weekly episodes. And you might want to go ahead and subscribe to our Journey YouTube channel as well. You'll find messages, music, interviews, inspiring stories, and more for you all right there. Now, I hope this episode helps you take your next step in following Jesus. want you to do this morning. I, I want to get you to use your imagination. This is going to be a little hard for all of us because we know the story today, right? We know the rest of the story, but I want you to imagine that you don't know how the story ends for just a minute. And I want to take you back to the moments just before there was a first Easter, to the time before, quite honestly, anybody even imagined there would be an Easter. And the reason I want to take you back there is because I think that's where you find some of, if not the most compelling evidence for why if you don't follow Jesus, you really ought to consider following him. And for those of us who follow Jesus, but let's be honest, maybe we don't take it quite so seriously, there's compelling evidence for why we should take it really, really seriously. Now, I say that completely understanding that if we were doing this over coffee, if we were having this conversation, uh, this might be the point where you said, whoa, whoa, I've got some really good reasons for why I view this the way I do or why I don't follow Jesus or why I don't take it seriously. And you would tell me about, you know, the questions you ask and you got terrible answers. You didn't get any answers at all. you tell me about, you know, the church or the Christians who hurt you. You'd give me all of that stuff. And that's, those are all valid reasons. When you got done, I wouldn't argue with you about that. I'd say, well, of course, you know, who could blame somebody like you for walking away or from distancing yourself? So I understand all of that. But I want to take you back to the time before there were Christians, before there was a church, before there was even a Bible. There were just a couple, roughly dozen Galilean men and women who they had bet on Jesus completely. And I don't know if we can wrap our minds around this, but they had decided he really was who he claimed to be. And they had bet their futures on him. And now they have seen him on a Roman cross. And they are burned. Like they, they are in shock, but they're in anger. Uh, they are, they're full of distrust and mistrust and disgust. They're just... They just, they're full of fear. They just don't know what to do with themselves. But clearly, they were wrong. Most of these men and women were just ordinary, everyday men and women. But there were two of them who were actually prominent citizens in Jerusalem. Their names were Joseph and Nicodemus. Joseph and Nicodemus. And what Joseph and Nicodemus did at the death of Jesus was really strange in the first century. It happened every now and then, but not often. They actually went to the Roman governor Pilate and they asked for Jesus' body that they could take Jesus' body and bury him himself. Now, the reason that was so strange is because the point of a Roman crucifixion was not what you would think. The point of a Roman crucifixion was not actually to kill somebody. There were faster and easier ways to do that. No, the point of Roman crucifixion was, one, to make a spectacle of that person and send the message, you know, what they did to the empire you should never, ever do. But the other point of the crucifixion was to annihilate the memory of that person off the face of the earth. And so what would typically happen at a crucifixion, uh, normally those bodies would be left up there for two or three days. And it's kind of like a, a billboard, a very grotesque billboard of, hey, this is what will happen to you if you do that. And then they would eventually take the bodies down. They would throw them in a cart. They would wheel that cart outside of the city walls, in this case city walls of Jerusalem, and they get it outside, and they took those bodies and they dumped them in the city or the community trash dump. And they just left the bodies for the wild animals to eat and devour. There was no grave. You could, there was nowhere you were going to go and mourn. You know, there was nowhere you were going to go and remember. There was nowhere you were going to go and tell stories. They were going to wipe the memory of your existence off the face of the earth as best they could. But every now and then, and it was very rare, but every now and then, 
Somebody would go to the Roman governor Pilate, and he would allow them to purchase the body off of the cross so they could get a proper burial. And so that's exactly what Joseph and Nicodemus do, and they risk a lot when they did it, but they marched into the palace of Pontius Pilate. And they said, we would like the body of Jesus. And we don't know exactly how this unfolded, but apparently the offer they made was enough money that Pilate said, I can't turn that down. I'll take your money. You can have the body. And so they did. They got the body of Jesus. And instead of him ending up in the trash heap outside of the city, Joseph and Nicodemus take him and they place him in Joseph's family tomb, which was there nearby. Now, this was just common uh, in Jewish culture then. Uh, these families would create these tombs, you know, these in caves basically. And that's where they would put their family members. And apparently Joseph had this thing all prepared for his family. He had no idea he was going to use it so soon. And he had no idea he was going to use it for Jesus. But on that day, Joseph and Nicodemus, they take Jesus' body. They did the uh, Jewish burial custom. They wrapped Jesus' body in about 75 pounds of linen and spices and myrrhs and things. And then they lay his body on a rock ledge in this tomb. And then they roll about a two-ton stone over the entrance to the tomb. And in that moment, and this is what, I, again, we know how the story ends, but just forget that for a minute. In that moment, imagine you were there. You know what they were feeling. They were feeling what all the other followers of Jesus were feeling. They were feeling complete hopelessness because they had assumed Jesus was who he claimed to be. They were certain that he was going to be the one. In their case, in their minds, he was going to be the one who set up his kingdom right there on earth, overthrow, overthrew Roman rule, and reestablished the Jewish people. And instead, he's dead, right? So in that moment, nobody is planning to keep the dream alive. Nobody's planning to keep the movement moving. After all, their savior, and they thought he was going to be, you know, their king who was overthrew the Romans. Their savior couldn't even save himself. Couldn't even save himself. The movement died. The movement died when Jesus died because, well, Jesus was the movement. I don't want you to miss this. What makes Jesus, one of the things that makes him unique from all the other religious leaders that established all other kinds of religions throughout history, is when you look at those, typically those religious leaders have a set of teachings or set of beliefs that they want to pass on and that they want to live on beyond themselves, right? So it's like, okay, I'm going to die, but these teachings and these beliefs, you got to keep spreading it, you got to keep spreading it. This is one of the things that was different about Jesus. He did not center his life around his teachings, he centered everything around his identity. He didn't center everything, and his followers, they didn't buy into him because of his teachings. They bought into him because of his identity, his, his claim that he was God in human flesh. And so when he died, there was no point to pass on his teachings. After all, his teachings, they weren't even that popular. He taught things like, you ought to pay your taxes. And the Jews are like, to the Romans? And he's like, yes, to the Romans. You ought to pay your taxes. And oh, while we're talking about the Romans, you ought to love and pray for your enemies. Yeah, the Romans again, right? Yes, the Romans. And when, they're, when they mistreat you, you ought to turn the other cheek. I mean, Jesus didn't have the kind of teachings that the Jewish people were going to be like, oh, we don't want anybody to forget these. No, it was like, you know, we, not very popular. We don't, we don't care if you remind us of those again. Jesus had built everything, though, around his identity. So in that moment, this is what I don't want you to miss. In that moment, before the first Easter, there was no hope. There was no movement. There were no followers. There was nobody sitting around going, oh, boy, I hope, I hope, I hope that somehow we can keep this thing going. Nope. There was a handful of Jewish religious leaders who were really happy because they had finally gotten Jesus killed and done away with that problem. There was a 
Roman governor by the name of Pilate who was relieved because he was afraid this whole thing that weekend was going to turn into an insurrection, and finally it was calm. There was a powerful temple in Jerusalem. There was a powerful Roman Empire. And then you had a handful of Galilean men and women who had decided they had been fooled, who had lost all hope. And as you may know, were hiding in homes and in rooms and different places around the city for fear that the same people who killed Jesus were going to kill them. That's what you would find at that moment. Now, I want you to hit pause right there. And let's fast forward 350 years, okay? February 27th, 380 AD. The Roman emperor Theodosius I issues a decree that Christianity is going to be the official state religion of the Roman Empire and... He says all of the pagan Roman gods, all the pagan Roman religions that they had practiced and celebrated for centuries, he said they're all done. We're not state funding them anymore. It's illegal to practice them. Now, I don't tell you that because I think it was a good idea for them to make Christianity the official religion. I, we could debate that, but I'm not, I don't think it was a good idea at all. That's not why I tell you that. Here's why I tell you that. Because if this is all you knew, if this is all you knew, you would go, What? How does a Galilean day laborer who is crucified by the Romans and never set foot in the city of Rome in his life, suddenly being revered throughout the Roman Empire as God, how has he become the central religious figure of the Roman Empire? That makes no sense. Now, let's fast forward again. And here we are today. Here we are today. And the Roman Empire is no more. But if you go to the city of Rome, some of you have been there. If you go to the city of Rome, you know what you see? You see crosses everywhere. Not crosses celebrating the Roman practice of crucifixion. Crosses celebrating the crucifixion of one Galilean day laborer. It's so odd. It's so strange. And if you go to Jerusalem, well, you don't find a functioning temple anymore, but you do find the streets of old Jerusalem are filled today with hundreds and hundreds, thousands and thousands of Jesus followers who are wanting to celebrate where he walked and where he taught and what he did. And today around the entire world, there are over 2 billion, that's billion with a B, there are over 2 billion people who are gathered just like we're gathered, celebrating what we're celebrating today. So, here's what I want you to think about. If this is all you knew, and all of this is historically verifiable, if this is all you knew, it would cause you to scratch your head, wouldn't it? If this is all you knew... Well, what's the question that begs to be asked? If this was all you knew, we would all be asking the same question. We would all be going, well, what happened? What ha how do you get from crucified on a cross to where you are today? What happened? And we might not know what happened, but we intuitively, intuitively would all know that something happened. Something had to have happened because it doesn't make any sense otherwise. There's too big of a gap. There's something that's got to be missing because this doesn't make logical sense unless something happened that changed everything. And fortunately for us, and this is important to understand, we have four independent, historically verifiable and reliable accounts of exactly what happened. They're written by Matthew, by Mark, by Luke, and by John. And each of them tell us what happened that changed everything. John, his case is interesting because as I've talked to people over the years, and I've thought this myself, I've had people say to me, you know what, it'd be a whole lot easier to believe this if you could just talk to somebody who was there, you know? If, I, if somebody was alive today that actually seen it. Well, 
These guys, and John in particular, John was so close to Jesus, John was right in the middle of it all. John saw it all, and then he wrote down an account of it for us. So this is as close as you get. This is an eyewitness account. And John says, let me tell you what happened. Here's how he puts it. Early on the first day of the week, the Sunday after the crucifixion, while it was still dark, and then John says, Mary Magdalene. Now, just real quick, and we got to move on, but um, if you don't know much about first century Jewish culture, women had zero credibility in the first century. Nobody would believe them. They couldn't go, they couldn't be a witness at a trial. That's how little credibility they had, which is so odd, right? Because we all know you women tell the truth way more than we men do. So that's a whole other issue. But, but in the first century, a woman couldn't even be a witness in a trial. So my, the reason I point that out is because if you were making this story up, you would not put women at the center of it. You wouldn't make women the first eyewitnesses. The only reason you would put it there is if, well, that's how it happened. And John says, here's what happened. Mary Magdalene. And she was with some other women at this point. But Mary Magdalene, who is one of those you know, couple dozen Jesus followers who were left, wondering, trying to figure it all out. Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. She didn't go to the tomb, by the way, because she you know, thought she was going to find something extraordinary. She went to the tomb because she had seen Nicodemus and Joseph prepare Jesus' body real quick before the Sabbath, Sabbath for burial. And she was certain the guys wouldn't know how to do it right. That's why she went to the tomb. She was true. It's true. They were going to fix things, you know, to, okay, we, got, we at least deserve some proper burial. So that's what they were there for. But when she went to the tomb, John tells us she saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. And she doesn't even go on up to the tomb. The minute she sees that, John says, she came running to Simon Peter. And the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. Now, John's referring to himself. It's like... Yes, humble John, tell us who you are. I'm the one that Jesus loved a little more than Peter. That's, what, that's basically what he's doing. So John says, okay, I was there and Peter was there, right? She came to the house where we were hiding out. Remember, they were scared to death, so they're hiding. He says, Mary Magdalene banging on the door, you know, comes to the house. We open the door like, what is going on? You're going to get us arrested. Don't draw so much attention to us. And he tells us this, that Mary Magdalene said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. As a matter of fact, we don't even know who they are, but somebody stole his body. That's what Mary Magdalene assumes when she sees it. Listen, there was no assumption. They didn't write themselves into this as heroes. There was no assumption that there was going to be a resurrection. Nobody expected to find nobody at the tomb. Everybody thought Jesus was going to do what dead people do, stay dead. Have you noticed the cemetery is the most organized place in the world? Nobody moves. Just stay dead, right? It's easy. So they're shocked, and they don't assume a resurrection. They assume, oh, my gosh, someday. We don't even know who they is, but somebody has come. And they hated him so much, they stole his body. Now, I told you Mary Magdalene was not alone at the tomb. She'd gone with some other women. And one of the other accounts tells us that as soon as Mary Magdalene ran off, the other women were like, well, shouldn't we at least go check, you know, and see what's in the tomb? So they had gone on up there and walked, and they had found it empty. And then they had had this extraordinary moment where they actually came face to face with Jesus and saw him alive. And they didn't know what to say. They didn't know what to do. They were just shocked. And then they come running back to the same house to tell Peter and John and the rest of the guys who were, you know, cowards just hiding out there. They come back to tell them what they've seen. And Luke, in his account, I love this. Again, they do not make themselves look good at all. Luke, in his account, tells us that they show up and they say, no, 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 they didn't steal his body. He's actually alive. He's actually alive. We saw him. We saw him. We saw him. And here's Luke's 
information for us. He says, but they, the disciples, Peter and John, those guys, did not believe the women because their words seemed like nonsense to them. Well, of course it did. Can you imagine if you were at somebody's funeral on Friday and then on Sunday somebody walks up to you and says, hey, guess what? You know, we buried Johnny on Friday. Yeah, it was sad. I know, but I saw him at Casey's this morning. Everything's good. You'd be like, you need some help. You need some help, you know? Of course it would seem like nonsense. Nobody was expecting this. This is not the way things happen. So they're all sitting there arguing, thinking these women, they don't know what they're talking about. You know, no wonder we don't let them go into court and testify. Listen to the, you know, they're, they're coming up with all this stuff. They're just so frustrated. They're so angry. They're so confused. But Peter and John, Peter and John, they're so curious that they're like, we got to go figure this out for ourselves. We don't think he's alive, but we got to solve this and, you know, get these women to stop going around telling everybody they saw him. So John tells us, Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. That has nothing to do with the story. It's just John's way of saying, in case this document lasts a long time, I just want everybody to know, you know, I'll beat Peter because they've been competing their whole lives apparently. So anyway, story continues. John says he's talking about himself in third person. But he says, he, John, bent over and looked in at the strips of the linen that were lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him. He went straight into the tomb. He's like, no respect, you know? Went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. And the cloth was still, there's so much detail in it. The cloth was still lying in his place, separate from the linen. And then John says, finally, the other disciple, me, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. And he saw and he believed. Now, do you know why they believed? They believed because just a few hours later, they saw Jesus with their own eyes. And it was completely unexplainable, but it was also undeniable. Now, we've all been here and done this, right? We have all believed things that we said, listen, I don't know how to explain this, but I just know it happened. I don't know how to explain this. It's unexplainable, but it's undeniable. It's right there. So we always, when there's a conflict between the explainable and the deniable, we always choose what's undeniable over what's unexplainable. And that's what they did. They could not make sense of this, but they saw him with their own eyes. And they devoted the rest of their lives. They devoted the rest of their lives. Not to spreading his teaching. You can check this out for yourself. In all the documents they wrote, you know, the letters they wrote to different Jesus followers in the first century, they didn't tell Jesus stories and they didn't quote him, you know, and all his nice little sayings. No. They didn't devote themselves to his teaching. They devoted the rest of their lives to Jesus because of what they had seen and heard and experienced. That's why. That's why. In other words, the resurrection, it became the foundation for their faith. And this is what I don't want you to miss today. The resurrection is the foundation of our faith too. It is. The resurrection explains one of history's greatest mysteries, which is how does a Galilean day laborer be crucified on a Roman cross. And 350 years later, the same Roman Empire is declaring him God. And 2,000 years later, we're all here celebrating. The, the resurrection explains how these guys went from being such cowards. They denied him when he was arrested. They fled and ran. They're hiding away in a house or in a couple houses trying to avoid being caught themselves. And then the very next day, moment, the very next moment, three days later, 
They're in the streets of Jerusalem proclaiming for anybody to hear, hey, we saw him, he's alive, he's alive. How in the world do you go from being so, such cowards to being so courageous unless something happened? It explains why those early followers of Jesus didn't just survive all the intense persecution, they thrived under it. This explains why so many early followers of Jesus would not renounce, again, not his teachings. No, no early followers of Jesus were killed because they w wouldn't deny his teachings. They were killed because they wouldn't deny what they had seen and heard and experienced. Because over a 40-day period, about 500 people got to see Jesus with their own eyes. And they just wouldn't deny it. Pretty much all of them ended up giving up their lives for it. See, the resurrection explains a lot of things that are unexplainable otherwise. But the resurrection also explains what I think is a personal mystery. Because all of us at different points in life, we've all wondered, we've all asked ourselves the question, well, where do we stand with God? I don't know, you know, is everything good? Where do I stand with God? Well, the resurrection answers this question defendably. Because, think about this, because if Jesus rose from the dead, then you really have no option but to trust and believe everything he said. Does that make sense? Now, if he didn't rise from the dead, listen, quite honestly, if he didn't rise from the dead, we're all wasting our time here. We should have done something else on Sunday morning. Because you don't want to pick and choose from somebody who claims to be God and clearly wasn't. But if he rose from the dead, well, now it's game on. If he rose from the dead, he, he has proven he was who he claimed to be, so I can trust everything that he said. And you know what Jesus said about where we stand with God? He actually had a conversation with Nicodemus, the same Nicodemus who eventually, you know, helps get him buried along with Joseph. Jesus had a conversation with Nicodemus, and here's what he said. He looked at him and he said, Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave his one only son that whoever believes or trusts in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, eternal life is not, um, well, I'm going to go to heaven one day when I die. That's what we all think of, but it's way more than that. When Jesus talked about eternal life, he was talking about the kind of life God created us to live. He was talking about a better life. He was talking about the kind of life that we could begin experiencing right here and right now. And sure, it's going to last forever, but we don't have to wait until we die to experience it. So Jesus looked at Nicodemus that day, and he said, hey, this is how much God loves you. You wonder where you stand with God? Here's where you stand with God. He loves you enough that I'm here, that I'll die for you. And then Jesus added this. He said, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. In other words, Jesus said, I didn't show up to pay you back for what you've done. I showed up to win you back. That my greatest ambition is to die so you can live. My greatest ambition is to lose so you can win. So, here's why I think Easter matters so much. Because first of all, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, the resurrection provides us with validation. What I mean by that is we can trust everything Jesus said. It validates all of his teachings. And Jesus said that you're at peace with God, you can be at peace with others, and you can be at peace with yourself because you can be fully forgiven by your heavenly Father. Jesus said that your prayers are heard, that your generosity counts, that your faithfulness matters. You don't have to wonder. You can have total confidence in that. It validates everything he taught. And for those of you who are not followers of Jesus, or you kind of walked away, or you don't take it seriously, I, I totally understand that. But you know what the resurrection does for you? It actually provides confirmation. Here's what I mean by that. God didn't look at you and say, you know what? You're going to have to close your eyes, 
take a leap of faith and believe real hard in me. Nope, Jesus showed up, he died, and then he rose again and was seen by over 500 people because he wanted to leave evidence that confirmed he was who he claimed to be. Evidence that confirmed it really happened. So you don't have to take a blind leap of faith. What the resurrection does is it gives you the evidence that you can consider and you can explore for yourself, and then you can come to a conclusion. Do I really believe this happened? If he didn't rise from the dead, move on. If he did, game on, because it changes everything. What he's done, what he's done provides us freedom. What he's done provides us forgiveness. What he's done provides us hope. In just a minute, we're going to sing one more song to wrap up. Before we do, if you guys will, stand with me. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful. We're grateful you loved us enough that you didn't just send a message or a messenger to tell us. So grateful you loved us enough that you, you didn't just tell us, oh, you got to close your eyes, take a leap of faith, and just try to believe. Man, thank you for showing up, Jesus to communicate and to demonstrate exactly what God is like. And thank you for dying and rising again to pay the penalty for our sins. Thank you for the evidence that you leave that we can all explore and decide for ourselves. Thank you for the validation, for the confirmation, for the hope that the resurrection provides. Thank you, Jesus, so much for what you have done. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Hey, if you'd like more content like this, subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our Journey app to access all of our recent message content. And our app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend. For more information on our church or to find our app or our YouTube channel, just visit journeycalway.com. That's journeycalway.com. Thanks for listening.